compassionate, gracious, holy Father in heaven attends our prayers. We give you praise for that. Amen. Seldom do I have an opportunity to um, preach on uh, a text like this morning, Habakkuk 3, and then in the evening, Psalm 1 of... It's, it almost feels excessive. <laughs> so much glory. So much beauty. But, thank the Lord. We have a marvelous passage before us. We, we started this a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to read the whole psalm at first, and we've already read uh, Psalm uh, 103, verses 1 through 5. So let's uh, turn your attention uh, to God's Word, and we will be reading uh, the various sections as we work our way through this lovely psalm. The question immediately uh, greets us as we look at this psalm is, why does the Holy Spirit... um, call you to address your heart with the benefits of Christ? That, that is a very significant question. Why does it seem necessary, important, and uh, helpful for the Holy Spirit to call you to address uh, your own heart with the benefits of Christ? I think, I think the answer is rather simple, and, and that is that we are naturally suspicious of the goodness of God. When we hear words like mercy and comparison, we, are, we generally compare them to how well we do in those categories. And God is, is just, God's like us, just a little bit better. Is that the way we think? Well, we're not so merciful, and we're not so compassionate. And what we desire is that every corner of our hearts would be absorbed with the beauty of God that our whole hearts would be captivated by God's God's attributes of mercy, steadfast love, compassion, father-like tenderness. And we are so forgetful of this that the Holy Spirit calls us to a forceful inner dialogue so that we forget not any of his benefits. And so our prayer tonight as we look into this passage again is for the Holy Spirit to fuel our hearts uh, with transformational power through the Gospel. To heat up our hearts with the Gospel fire so that all within us, everything within us, would bless the name of God. Now there are three major sections to this psalm. Uh, We're going to be looking uh, first at verses 6 through 12. And the head here is God is slow to anger, rich in mercy. God is slow to anger and rich in mercy. Let's read verses 6 through 12. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, 
nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. God is slow to anger and rich in mercy. The language of this portion calls us back to Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34. It is an echo of God's self-revelation in keeping with, listen to this, in keeping with the sin of the golden calf. I'm going to read several uh, passages, several verses from Exodus and, and tell this story briefly through God's Word so that we can see how marvelous, how incredible uh, this story of God's um, richness in mercy uh, really is. Let's, let's begin um, in chapter 33 um, and verse 3. Um, the people, had, while Moses was on the mountain for the first time, the people, as you recall, um, built this uh, golden calf Aaron himself was amazed. He threw in gold and out came a calf. And this is what the Lord says. You, Israel, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The verse, verse 4 says... This is a disastrous word. The people knew well enough that this was disastrous, but it was also because of the corruption of their sin. So in verse 11 of that same chapter, it is said this, God is providing a mediator. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses then, as mediator, reminded God, this nation is your people. And so look with me down at at verse 14. Um, And he, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God relented. And Moses goes up on the mountain with God in the, in the next chapter and he desires God to reveal himself uh, to Moses. And this is how God describes himself. This is how God, God reveals himself. This is in verse 6 of, of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God's self-identification after the wickedness of the people's sin. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He describes himself in the same language here in, uh, in Psalm 103. Uh, he, let's go on and see verses 9 and 10. He will not always chide. Doesn't that make sense now? After what we've just seen about the... About the the people sin with the, with the camp. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has relented. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. How, how much sense can we make of that? 
For we go back to, to Exodus 34, and, and it says that uh, God is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity for transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He cannot leave the guilty unpunished. He puts us in Jesus, in Christ, who is found guilty for us and fully punished at the cross. And so the wonder we read this, the hymn, we sang the hymn, that, the hymn that Emma suggested. This is, this is the wonder that we can hear it and hear it, and, and yet it's still, we still marvel. Uh, we are found, Jesus found guilty for us, and God dies for our rebellion. His anger fully then resolved in Jesus. God dies for our rebellion. This is the nature of God. It's full of mercy, kindness, abounding in steadfast love because of his self-sacrifice in Jesus. Why did we have a hard time getting that? Uh, Because it is so different. God's dealing with us is so different from our own. We are quick to anger. We are stingy with mercy. Uh, People pay a price when they cross us, even if it's the silent chill of our own resentment. We will nurse grievances, sometimes for decades unabated. We think God's uh, anger is like ourselves, hair-trigger sensitive, but he is slow to anger. And then look at the distance in verses 11 and 12. As high as the heavens are above the earth, uh, as far as the east is from the west, his steadfast love covers us, our sins are removed. Why is that a difficult thing for us to grasp? Because our sins seem so close. They're right here. They're in our current attitudes, our current behavior. They are certainly with us as we remember some shameful things in our past. They're both past and present. And so we need to speak to our consciences because we will never get this completely right while in these bodies. We won't ever get the full measure, the generosity of God's heart while in these bodies. So the Spirit says, keep reminding yourself of that. Address our souls, this is, the way that, this is the way that some theologians address, uh, identify this. Address our souls with the glory of God and His grace in order to dismantle a legal frame of mind. Declare, declare, hear preaching, speak to others of the glory of God's forgiveness and steadfast love in order to help dismantle a legal framework a legal mind, frame of mind that we all have. But I'm not even going to define a legal framework. I'm going to describe two situations. And you tell me if you've got just a hint of this legal framework still in your mind. Okay? You get into an argument with someone in your family. Someone's close to, someone close to you, someone you love. 
as you think about that right now, would you rather be right or be forgiven? Would you rather win the argument or receive the mercy of God for your sins? Second thing, someone brings a concern to you. Someone brings a criticism to you. Someone who loves you. How do you respond? Is your initial impulse, well, thank you. I needed to hear that, and I'll try to remember that. Or is it something that goes more like this? What about you? How can you address that in me when you've got this? And you defend yourself with the force of Mount Vesuvius. We've got a bit of that, bit of that legal framework, don't we? And the extent to which we have that legal framework, we have not yet internalized in our heart the steadfast love, the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. We're still dealing in life with that legal framework instead of that gracious perspective. So we say, we say at this point in the psalm, Spirit, cleanse me from a legal mindset and grow my heart in a gospel mindset. You see, the gospel mindset is so humbled before God that he or she is quick to acknowledge sin. He or she is quick uh, to, to clear a conscience and to quick to make things right with others. And the more you understand the grace of God in this fashion, you will find resentment towards another's sin to be unthinkable, to be intolerable. The more you get grace, the more you see that, that, that hanging on to such things becomes oh, towards, against other people becomes un, unthinkable. God is slow to anger, rich in mercy, even to those who put up that golden calf, and even to you and me. Second thing, verses 13 through 18, uh, God is a compassionate Father. Let me read 13 through 18. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. Uh, Verse 19 as well. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. I want you to consider, if you are a parent, this will not be very difficult. If you are not a parent, work with me just a little bit here. But imagine you have a child, and this child has a learning disability that really puts him or her at a disadvantage in school, for example. Or you have a child who has a chronic sickness They're never able to really get away from this problem in their lungs, this problem in their legs, this problem in their back. Whatever it is, they've got to deal with it virtually every day. 
And it sets them apart from their siblings and from playmates. Or you might have a child that has emotional fragility, just so easily disturbed and upset, just, just, just gets upset so easily. Now, as a parent who knows her weakness, will you be more compassionate to her or less? Will you be more tender with her than you are with her strong and self-reliant siblings or less? God, verse 14, knows our frame. He knows how we are formed. He sees all of your weaknesses. He sees the ones you don't see. He sees how readily you fall into certain kinds of sin, almost with metronomic regularity. He perceives your selfishness. He sees your pettiness at the way you are so so prickly when someone seeks to say something to you. He's aware of your blind spots where you see very narrowly and in a very rigid way and you can't let any light in from anyone else. He sees that. He sees your stubbornness even though you don't. The thing that amazes me about being in a family relationship, being married to someone and having children being a child, it is in those relationships that we are known intimately and still loved. And if you find that amazing in your family and in your closest relationships, how much more with God? He sees you. He's aware of your frailties. And instead of being impatient with you, instead of being intolerant with you, instead of treating you as you might might treat someone else, he gives the high priest who sympathizes with you, who is merciful to you in your weaknesses, even in your repeated sins. He is merciful to you even in your repeated sins. In fact, his greatest compassion is reserved for you in your greatest weakness. Our conscience recoils against that. It's hard for us to take that in. But God's greatest compassion is poised over us in our greatest weakness. Verses 15 and 16, we are as temporary as grass. Most of us will die without leaving a trace. We'll leave barely a ripple in the water. Life is fragile. It is brief. But then it says, but God's steadfast love. Even in that, but God's steadfast love. Uh, His steadfast love of the Lord, verse 17, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to His children's children. The classic, let me take you back to the Old Testament again. The classic... mm, One of the classic situations where we see what God's steadfast love is really like is found in the life of King David. A classic picture of covenant faithfulness. God's commitment to us, uh, that is of, of a chesed variety, it is steadfast love, it is faithfulness. David, you remember, yearned 
he yearned to find a relative of King David's whom he could show, to whom he could show mercy, having made a promise to, to Jonathan to bless the children uh, of, of Jonathan and, and relatives of Jonathan. Jonathan, he is committed to finding someone to whom he can show mercy. His, his heart is a restless, heat-seeking missile for good. It, it just can't stop until it finds, until it lights on someone to whom he can show mercy and steadfast love. And who does he find? Who, does that, who is identified for him? The blind, or the, the lame, rather, Mephibosheth. He's committed to showing kindness to Mephibosheth because of this promise made to Jonathan. Four times in, in this chapter, in 2 Samuel, four times it says, and he wanted, he, either he wanted to, or, or either David wanted Mephibosheth, or Mephibosheth did eat at the king's table. Four times. He'll eat at the king's table. He'll eat at the king's table. He's also identified as someone who is lame, lame in both feet. And Mephibosheth says, Me? How can that love, steadfast love, be for a dead dog like me? And after all of this, the postscript at the end of the story, it's almost comical. He says, And he always ate at the king's table, and he was lame in his feet. Now some scholars look at that, noting that, that the writer had already said that several times in the text so far. This would be an example source criticism. It would say this is two different uh, sources that are being put together sloppily, I might add, adding these extra, this, these, repeating these things like that. Or it's just sloppy writing. Both of those are absurd responses. This instead is to help drive home the point of the covenant love of God, the steadfast love of God for lame, broken down people, not like Mephibosheth, but like you and me. God's covenant love is a heat-seeking missile to find you and rescue you and comfort you and feed you and nourish you because that's the kind of God He is. God's covenant love seeks out the lame. Again, the question comes, why do we need to address our souls with this steadfast love benefit? Why? It should be simple to see now. We are naturally suspicious of such open-hearted compassion. The Spirit has to say, don't forget it. Don't forget it. Now, what makes it so, what makes it so beautiful for us? I would say... I, I would say instead, again, put this, put this back on, on you. Think about Mephibosheth. Do you think that as he was having dinner at the king's table, he would be preoccupied with the limps of other people? Or would he be absolutely flabbergasted that he's even on the invitation list? Day after day after day. Do you think he ever got comfortable with the fact that, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I eat with the king. Dead dog like me. Mephibosheth is preoccupied with this amazing reality that he's there at all. So once again, a little, a little, a little hint for us. Do we get it? 
Do we get the steadfast love of God? Do we get the welcoming compassion of a father for us in our weakness? I would say there's, there's a little test, and that is how welcoming are you of other blame people at the king's table? How welcoming are you? Or you focus on their limp and say, why are they here? The steadfast, the compassionate love of the Father. Well, the last question deals uh, in, um, in, uh, in, in verses, uh, we'll read 19 again, 19 to 22. Uh, this, this is, um, uh, the psalmist is now calling all creation to join in the praise to God. Notice where we began. The psalmist begins by reminding himself that he needs to praise God. And what for? These five benefits. And the fuel of the gospel has warmed his heart so that God's forgiveness and compassion are, are changing him. And then here he expands it farther uh, to invite all creation to a praise fest. Do you see where he's come? I, I've got to remind myself and I've got to remind my friends of the steadfast love of God and the compassion of God. Now, he want his, having had his heart warmed, it cannot embrace all of reality, wanting to see all of reality now in praise to God. Let me read this section. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, all his hosts, his ministers, all who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And we might add, bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless the Lord, all the creation that he's made. The heavenly hosts refer to God's angels who are serving at his bidding, who are serving in his his business on earth. That would be a whole different sermon to discuss what that is about. And yet all of the works on earth are to join in as well, human and otherwise, all exist to do the will of God and to praise Him for His glory and His dominion. Let all the earth praise Him and adore Him. We've sung already twice today. A little story from New York. A sophisticated uh, New York woman had uh, a four-year-old son named Luke. And Luke was doing something very strange that she certainly never taught him to do. His father uh, was overseas uh, in the war in Afghanistan. And uh, she noted when on the TV there came some story of, uh, of, of, the, the, of the, the war in Afghanistan. Very subtly, Luke would do this. And he'd lower his head. And he would pray. He only did it when mom couldn't see him. She found, mom found herself envying Luke for his faith. But at the same time, being ashamed that he couldn't pray in front of her. She found herself envying Christians. She knew, she had a Christian friend who 
who would speak about a bubbling brook as if it were almost a living part of God's creation. It was made by God in his, for his, for, to glorify Him in its beauty. She would be captivated by, by a bubbling brook and praise God for it. All this woman saw was a brook. No wonder and no marvel. She had another friend who, in the peeling of an orange, you know how the, when you peel an orange, you can get, you can get a, a tiny spray, a citrus spray. And, and that reminded this friend of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in her hungry heart. And so even as she would peel an orange and eat it, she was having an encounter with God. And this woman, this woman was just envious, again, of someone who could see creation praising God and she was missing out on all of it. She saw an orange, no mystery, and no marveling. You see, the scripture teaches us that the world is designed not only by God for his glory, but also for his praise, to adore him. It longs to give praise to God. And all the world, one writer puts it this way, all the world congratulates and embraces and sings with souls that are given to God. There, there is a gathering together of God's created works to give him praise. Creation, we read in, in, in Romans 8, longs to be free from corruption and to live in harmony with all God's children, yearning for today's groanings to turn to praise. Yearning for today's groanings to be turned to praise. And all creation longs, therefore, to be at home fully with God. What is this passage, what is this portion of Psalm 103 telling us? Thank you for choosing that hymn, Emma. Thank you for choosing that hymn. What is it telling us? That worshipers who have grasped the heart of God want other worshipers to grasp the heart of God. Two things to pray for on this section. That the Spirit would show you the compassion and glory and steadfast love of God. The Spirit, not just as an intellectual or theological category, but your soul would be gripped by it. See, it is beautiful. So much so that secondly, God would give, um, enable us uh, to share out of His compassion, have a burning desire that others would have it too that others would be worshipers. That's where I want you to, I want to leave that, those two things with you tonight. That the Spirit would grow in you a burning passion for the glory and the steadfast love of God, number one. And number two, that your lips would be compelled, having been gripped, your lips would be compelled to share that with others so that God could have more worshipers. Let's pray. Father, Father, your, um, your word is, um, is remarkably beautiful. The message of your scriptures, uh, written so long ago, is as current as today's news. 
our hearts desire more than anything to know you in this way as the compassionate, steadfast, merciful Father. Thank you. Thank you for subduing our hearts. And may we live this day for your glory. Amen.